What's up, skiers? Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Ski System Podcast with me, your host, Abe Maynard, former competitive mogul skier, junior Olympic medalist, former strength and conditioning coach slash lifestyle coach with Equinox, where I was nominated 2019 Trainer of the Year amongst 4,800 trainers. I stepped away from that to make the ski system happen. I believe in strength training, and I've seen firsthand the difference it can make on people's life and their well-being. Not only will your ability to do the things that you love improve, but there's lifestyle and longevity benefits to it as well. So it's kind of like two for one. With skiing specifically, we know that a body that is trained and more capable increases the amount that you can enjoy the sport. You fight fatigue, you can ski more diverse terrain, you can ski faster, and more importantly, control your body in all of those settings to stay safe. Because at the end of the day, one of the biggest benefits of strength and conditioning relative to skiing is the fact that it improves safety by helping reduce the risk of injury. But how do we get that to happen? One of the biggest things that you can do is dedicate yourself to a consistent and minimally frequent strength training program, which is exactly what the ski system offers. But a big component of this is knowing where you start in the off season. The ski season demands our attention. And in many cases, people neglect to maintain their strength output, which I understand. There's only so much time in the day. And if you're trying to maximize skiing, some things got to fall by the wayside. In other episodes and closer to the season, I will place again an argument forward as to why I think you should really dedicate a little bit of time to maintaining your strength training output. But for the sake of this conversation, we are really going to talk about the off season. And this episode does piggyback a little bit off the previous, except that I'm going to reflect specifically on the last two weeks where I've been doing this ski system reschedule testing, sorry, retesting schedule. And what I wanted to design here, and this will continue to change as we go forward and improve and get more pristine, but I wanted to go ahead and establish a schedule of retesting that you can do every April. Every April from here on out, for as long as you ski, you can replicate this assessment process with no other goal than gauging where you're at. You don't have to set goals to beat your previous year, but I will show you how to utilize these numbers and these outcomes to make sure that you're getting the most out of your ski season and also the most out of your health, wellness, longevity, and strength training. So what did we do? We basically took four days and we spread testing out over that time. The reason that I did this instead of trying to cram it all into one day is that you want to give your body time to recover, especially when your intensity is as high as it should be if you're retesting. Granted, that is relative. Some people are new to strength training in general, So any type of outcome in the testing process is going to be beneficial. For those of us that have been training for longer, that have a better understanding of where we are, where we'd like to go, and our personal intensities, you know that these are going to be demanding days. They're going to be demanding on your nervous system by the amount of stress that max effort testing places on it, but it's also going to be demanding on your body because it's going to have to recover from these high-intensity outputs so that the next test that you have coming up in however many days that is, you're nice and fresh and ready for it. The other thing I did with this testing protocol is space out the types of assessments that are going on to maximize this recovery. Because what you don't want to do is max effort test your deadlift in the same day that you max effort test your squat or a day apart, because your body's not going to be in a prime position to do both of those well. 
That's why the trap bar deadlift is split up by the one mile run, split up by the front squat, and that's split up by the lateral movements and the plyometric movements. When I built this schedule, it was spread out over quite a long time, in all honesty, too long. But that's what worked with my schedule. And that's a really big part of not only training, but definitely retesting. You have to do what works for you. So even if there's some blueprint that's been printed out, just like all the programs on the ski system, you have to tailor it to you specifically so that you can find the consistency and you can execute it. If I had set out to test everything in four days, I wouldn't have done it. And that's discouraging in and of itself. So what I did is I spread it out over two weeks and I chose days that I knew I would have enough time to prepare, to execute, to give myself a second chance on the lift if I felt like there was more juice in it, and then to cool down and reflect on it, record everything that I did, And to be fair, because I was filming this and sharing this with the ski system audience, I also had to film everything, which took a lot longer than I expected. So um, let's move into, into the lifts here. What I would say is this, with all these numbers that we're about to talk about, unpack and distribute into our training, I understand that some people aren't gonna start training in April. Some people aren't even gonna start training in May. And the large majority of people at this point, just because there's not much awareness as to why this isn't advantageous, they're going to wait till October and November to start training and squeak it in right before the ski season, hoping that that'll be enough. And there will be nothing to tell them otherwise if they make it all the way through the season. And I really hope that everyone does. I I wish no injuries and, you know, no malevolence on anyone through their ski season. But for those of you that start to train this month or in May, you can take your time. You can be smart about your training. You can be pragmatic about your training. You could utilize programs from the ski system for your training and you won't risk overdoing it because you'll have more feedback and ability to take a step back if need be. If you're feeling something in your body, if you're feeling something in your hips or your shoulder, you have the entire summer So you can take time and let something heal and keep working on other things. Start working your lower body, rest your upper body, vice versa. If you're too worn out from training in the gym, go for a run. If your ankles and knees aren't loving running, increase the amount that you're training in the gym. But with the entire summer ahead of you, you have a lot of control over those months, over your output, over your intensity. The closer you get to the ski season, the higher the stoke is, the more likely people are to rush their training and preparation. That's not to say that something's better than nothing. And I know that there will be hundreds of people that start training on the ski system ski system next October. And I invite that and I applaud that because that's taking ownership over your season anyway. But here's how this assessment really plays out in the next couple months. So let's start first with the trap bar deadlift and what this is exactly a little recap as to why we're assessing this and its benefits to skiing i've written articles about why skiing and deadlifting should be married there is so much to learn from this exercise also with the trap bar it's relatively safe there's not that much complications around the shoulder joint that you need in terms of mobility to do a straight bar deadlift and you're lifting from the floor up, not from the top down and back up. So it's less total range of motion. But with good mechanics, you can really overload it and get a ton of bang for your buck. It's glute dominant, hip dominant, and that's a big part of skiing, both stability, strength, and power. You want the backside of your body to have strength and integrity as you're going down the hill. 
even though we're looking forward, we're flexing to our knees, we're loaded into our ankles, and it feels very frontal, you have to have that balance on the posterior side of your body to stay healthy, to reduce the risk of injury, and in all honesty, to maximize your ability to turn harder, hold a better edge, take a bigger landing, the list goes on and on. So I chose the trap bar deadlift as the first thing. What I recommended that everyone did was assess a three rep max. Unless you're a complete vet in the training facility and you wanna do a one rep max and you really know how to use that type of information, go for it. But for the rest of us, myself included, I don't really need to put myself at that risk. Whereas using a three rep max, you can get a pretty good range of numbers from that. So. I already put uh, on the Instagram, there's a little tab called testing under the highlights. You can click through that. It shows what the retesting schedule was. It also goes through every warm up that I did into each of the lifts. It's very important when you're doing high intensity testing that you warm your body up properly. That doesn't mean you just do jumping jacks for every warm up that you're going to do. You do movements and preparations specific to the movement to prime your body physically and neurologically, connect your brain to your body, to then go and do the movement as you progressively load it. It's very important to do this. Skipping straight to the exercise and just doing the exercise and loading it up until it feels heavy and then going beyond that, not very smart way to do things. And if you look to anybody at elite performance in any sport across the board, all athletes have an intelligent preparation for what they're doing. So if you're going to take this on, which I highly recommend, and you're excited about it, follow the videos in the testing uh, button. And you can also go online and look through the website. There's another breakdown in the blog post of kind of what you should do. And you can take this on. So what you want to do is get three repetition max. This should be three reps of the exercise at maximal loading that you would categorize as a 6 or a 7 out of 10. The reason that we do this is because if you were doing one rep, we would want that to be 100%, aka 10 out of 10. Most of us shouldn't be attempting that because our skill as weightlifters doesn't bring us to the place where we should be testing a 100% effort exercise. Think of what 100% effort really means. You are literally putting everything on the line to make that lift happen. Is that important for the majority of us who are skiing recreationally? Probably not. Is that important for Michaela Schifrin going into the Olympics? Probably not. But does she use some sort of relative max testing for her lifts? Absolutely. And that's what we're doing here. So in my videos, if you followed along, I was able to get up to a three rep max of 375 pounds. That's insane and absolutely not necessary for probably anyone listening. But the reason that I shared these numbers with everybody is so that you can see what happens to the percentages of these numbers. For the everyone listening out there, remember that heavy is relative. 375 for me might feel heavy for three reps, but that doesn't mean that that should A, be a goal for you at all. It doesn't mean that you should try to strike for that. And it doesn't mean that that should be low if you could do more than that. It has to be relative to you. If you don't have a trap bar, test this on a kettlebell. If you only have a couple kettlebells, use your heaviest one. If that's easy, do 20 reps and see how hard that is. There's always some way to scale this to the individual person. So again, I use these numbers to show what percentages look like from it, not to show you what I actually do. So if we take this 375 number for the trap bar deadlift and you go to rep max calculator, which is in the show notes here, 
plug that in and then put it for the amount of reps done. In my case, I did use a one rep, my personal case. But if you're using a three rep, you would just type in three for the amount of reps performed. So for me, one rep max, 375 pounds, gives me 95, 85, 75, 65, 55, and 45 percentage points from that lift. For example, 85% of my one rep max would be 318 pounds. 65% would be 243. The reason that we do this is so that we can start to understand to a number what our relative intensity is for a movement. So if I want to work on becoming faster, more explosive, so that I can make harder turns, so that I can jump higher off a jump, or that I can land and quickly rebound back into a position to ski more terrain, and I want to improve my personal speed and power, I want to be training at about 65% quickly. So if we take a movement like the trap bar deadlift, and my goal is to get faster, my goal is to get more explosive, I may set a timer for 10 minutes, do two reps as fast as I can, and rest 35 to 40 seconds and repeat this over and over for 10 reps. Because I'm at such a low percentage, I can do something like max my speed and power output in the movement safely. If I tried to do 95% of what I'm capable of at a high speed, that's really risky. And it's too high of a percentage to be able to train my power, because I'm really just training strength due to how heavy it is. So I know this is a lot of information to consider when you're just thinking about training for skiing. But the big point here is that whatever number you do for one repetition or three reps, or maybe it's too light, so you do five reps, you can go online, put the number in there, put the number of reps, and you're going to get spit out a scale of your intensity, essentially a one to 10 scale of your easiest weight, hypothetically, and hypothetically, your heaviest weight that you could do that week. Then you get to play with these numbers in the summer. Like I wrote last year on social media, the summer should be divided up into different phases because you have April, May, June, July, August, and September. And then depending on where you live, you're probably getting on snow in October and November. So you have three micro cycles of training that you can do in the summer. And what you want to do in each of those is train slightly differently, depending on your other outputs, depending on your mountain biking schedule, your hiking schedule, how much you're kayaking, what trips you're going on. But in a perfect world, you're going to spend the majority of the beginning of the summer really working on getting physically stronger per repetition. That's going to be at these higher 95, 85, 75% rep ranges because you can afford to do it. You could spend the first couple months of the summer deadlifting at high percentages, taking long rests because you don't need your conditioning yet, and just getting stronger in your different exercises so that when you get towards the end of the summer, you can take that strength that you've built, you've worked so hard to build, and transition it into plyometric, explosive, athletic, agility-based movements so that you didn't just get strong for nothing. You got strong so that you could use your strength, so that you could take that strength on snow and shift directions and move laterally quickly and see your skiing literally change in front of you because now your body responds better. So that's the breakdown on the percentages for trap bar deadlift. I'm going to just quickly explain what we 
do with front squat, and then I'm going to run through these same numbers just to give you an example again. So the front squat, I absolutely love as a strength assessment tool for two reasons. One, it's loaded on the front of your body versus the back of your body. This naturally puts your spine in a more extended position through your thoracic spine, a more vertical, tall body position through your trunk, and that allows for slightly safer loading on the way down to the bottom of the squat. If you lack the thoracic mobility or the ability to keep the bar in the right position and you roll forward, you will drop the bar. So it's an autocorrect that happens in the lift that keeps us in a safer position. If the same thing happened while the bar was loaded on your back and you rounded forward, you could potentially really injure yourself. With a front squat, if that starts to happen, you know not to go any lower. You just stand back up. So it has a baked-in safety mechanism to the lift. The other reason I love this, it's frontal anterior core loading. Our abs from our chest all the way down to our waist, all those front muscles in your core get loaded by the fact that the barbell is sitting directly above them. It does not mean that this doesn't happen in a back squat. It's just more pronounced in a front squat. And if you look at the position that we ski in, flexed hip, flexed knee, tall chest, loaded over our boots, those are the same muscles that we're loading in a front squat. So it's going to reinforce this good stacked upper body position that I've talked about endlessly before. So that's why we choose the front squat as our assessment. Caveat again, if you don't have a barbell, not a big deal. You can hold two dumbbells in front of your body. You can hold a kettlebell in front of your body. If you have absolutely no weights, you could do a maximum effort of just body weight squats. You could hold a backpack with cinder blocks stuffed in it and measure that. Whatever it is, we're just trying to look at assessing the movement. And again, that makes it scalable. If this year you have no weights but a backpack with cinder blocks and you can perform 25 reps, guesstimate the weight, put it in the rep max calculator for 25 reps, and you'll get relative percentages. Let's say that 100% was you know, three pounds more. You can guess that that's probably a couple cinder blocks. So if you get no equipment over the summer and you come back to the same situation, you know how to scale your exercise and you know where you should be going into the following season. So that's just to say that not having a barbell isn't a reason not to assess this movement. So with the three rep max barbell front squat, this came to 245. That puts 100%. I actually did a three rep max on this, not a one rep. So the 245 bakes out to... Uh, 260 as 100%, 247 at 95, and on the lower end, 143 pounds at 55%. So how do I use this, right? Different movement. It has more phases in it. You're starting from the top, coming down to the bottom, back up, versus just the bottom up and down like a deadlift. It's a little bit more taxing per rep, and it's harder to do fast. It's easier to lift a deadlift bar off the ground quickly and do something powerful, like in Olympic weightlifting when they do cleans or clean pulls. It's a lot harder to do a front squat powerfully. But what I'm going to use the front squat for is speed on the very low percentage, maybe 45 to 50% whenever you're working speed on a front squat. And it's going to help me overload the movement because at the end of the day, the front squat, having strength in the front squat, not plyometric ability or power, but having strength in it is great for skiing. And if you have any interest in the Olympic lifts, the front squat is the foundation that links all ground movements to standing overhead movements. So a jerk doesn't happen if you can't clean the weight. You can't clean the weight if you can't do a front squat. 
So it's a great precursor to build into your training arsenal as you continue to strength train. So with the plyometric aspects of this, if you can improve your front squat, likelihood of improving your vertical jump over time is also higher. It's similar mechanics and then performed at lower percentages, you're going to start to see some transferability into your anterior plyometric movements that happen in front of the body. So just like with the deadlift, you get your max number, however you test it. If it's two 20-pound dumbbells and you did a 40-pound front squat, put that in, note to yourself that you used dumbbells, and then mark that for your next season. Next, we get to the nasal run or mile run. I call it a nasal run just because I practice always running, only breathing through my nose. If you're curious about this, I've done a podcast about it with a master instructor at the Oxygen Advantage on my other podcast, the Main Idea Podcast. There's going to be a link in this to that, so you can listen to that. Also, the book Breathe and Deep by Dr. James Nestor. Not doctor, just James Nestor. He worked alongside doctors at Stanford. But uh, those books are also in the show notes. They changed my life on athletic performance and breathing. So I call it a nasal mile. I do it only breathing through my nose, but you can do this in any capacity. You could do this on a treadmill. You could do this on a hike loop that you like to do that takes about a mile. You could do this on a run like I did. You can breathe through your mouth. That's fine. I recommend nose, but that's fine. The point is that you're taking a mile. Why a mile? A mile is a useful thing to assess going into your season because one, it's short. It can literally be done anywhere. If you're at a hotel in the middle of Nebraska, you can map out a mile loop on Google Maps and run it. If you're in a gym, in a hotel, and they only have a treadmill, you can test your mile. It's very versatile. You can also test it at altitude. You can test it at sea level. And what this is doing, if you really put the pedal to the metal, it is assessing your cardiovascular endurance and your cardiovascular power through this mile marker. The shortness allows you to push the pace. If you had to run two and a half, three miles, you're going to reserve energy even if you set out not to. It's just going to be natural. At a mile, you can wrap your head around putting forth the most effort you can. So with this, the idea is to run the mile as fast as you can. I like to use the Strava app on my watch because it's easy to correlate back to my phone and save and take notes, but there's plenty of ways to do it. I think Whoop has a way to measure it. You could just time it yourself and map it out, but record this number. Make sure you record the number because you're just going to try to aim for this next year. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the end, about how to make sense of all this come next season, why we should be writing this down, recording it, taking notes and training towards all these things. But just get a number for your mile. Push the pace a little bit. Record your heart rate if you can. That way you'll know relative to the future how hard you are pushing yourself so that you can make sure you're putting out pretty much the same effort. And if you're interested in the no stuff, just reach out and I can chat with you sidebar, uh, direct message about that. So get your, get your mile. You could also, like I said, do this in a hike. So if you don't like to run, if running hurts, you could do this on an elliptical. You could do this on a Stairmaster. You could do this on a hike. Anything that is a, has the ability to measure distance and time. Heart rate helps so that you can test it again in the future. Next, we move to these one strength exercise that's kind of an oddball that you probably wouldn't ever see in a reassessment and two plyometric exercises that are very specific to skiing. So the first one, 
And uh, I'm going to save you the RepMax calculator thing. I think you know where to find that and how to use it. But the lateral lunge, again, I'm choosing three rep max. I want to test my body's strength laterally, so not moving forward or backwards, moving to the side, which for obvious reasons pays to skiing because our entire sport is lateral. As you cut across the hill on your edges, your hips can change direction. Your chest typically should stay down the fall line and you make turns. So you're never moving straight all the time, 100% with your bases flat on the ground. You're edging and you're moving around, you're angling your body. So knowing how strong you are in this plane of motion is great. But the reason that I love the lateral lunge assessment and actually loading this in terms of strength is it will expose disproportionate or asymmetrical weaknesses in your body. We all have a dominant side. Most people will admit that they make a better turn on one side of their body than the other. Or if you're going down the hill and you have to make an aggressive move, you're going to dominate one turn relative to the other. So this is a great way to load the body, stress it out, move it into the lateral plane and see what happens when we go here. What kind of things buckle? Does my knee want to give out? Does my ankle feel like it loses stability? Does my leg shake really bad on the right side? Whatever these things are, the main goal here is awareness. So whatever happens, record it. If you take a video from behind your body and you notice that you have a really tough time getting all the way down to your hip on the surface, note that. If it's easier on the other side, note it. One thing to keep in mind, discrepancies in the body are fine if they're symmetrical. If they're asymmetrical, it just presents a little bit more of a problem because you have to solve for that as you go forward in the training program. So I just like to take notes here. Feel what your body feels, record what you feel that day, record the weights and the three reps on either side. And again, back to this point of if you don't have a barbell, that's 100% fine. The importance here is the movement, not the way in which you load it. So holding a, a dumbbell or a kettlebell or using your body weight or using a sliding surface, whatever it is that you're able to assess about three reps at a very difficult seven, eight out of 10 feeling without any structural breakdown, that's the number that you're after. Next, we go to the box jump, 60 seconds. Again, like the mile, this is a very replicatable thing to do. It requires very little time. All you need is a box. Make sure that the height comes up to just below the kneecap like I explained in the video. And up to the top of the box, over to the other side, up back to the top, and to where you started is one rep. You set a timer for 60 seconds and go. So this is testing a lot of things. One, it's testing coordination. This is your eyes relative to the rest of your body, your proprioception. Are you able to jump up, clear the box, land on the top, jump to the ground, quickly change direction, and get back up and over the box to where you started? That is an assessment of your body working as a unit in a plyometric setting to achieve the goal. That is what skiing is 24-7 all the time from the top of the mountain all the way down to the bottom. You're seeing things coming at you, your brain's making decisions, you're asking your body to respond as quick as possible, and you're doing things that are athletic and they're performed quickly in small amounts of time. So you take 60 seconds, you do these lateral box jumps, you will feel two things happen. Your coordination will start to decrease as you fatigue, lactic acid will build up in your quads as they have to repeat this action over and over again, and you'll start to lose stability. All these things are great because we're testing those limits within your body. And if you can improve those by next season, or if you can get them to the level that they're at right now at the end of the season, before you go into next season, 
you will have more fun skiing. You'll be skiing at a greater level at the beginning of the season, better than when you left the last season. Think of how much more you can improve as a skier if you start the season where you ended the previous one, truly, not mentally, actually, because your body is actually there, ready with you at that level of performance. That's incredible. So if you can do, let's say, 15 of these box jumps in 60 seconds right now. You'll want to aim for that come November. Get yourself at least to a place where you can perform the same output. Build that lactic acid up. Buffer it out of your muscles. Perform something quick, explosive. Change of direction, deceleration, acceleration. All these things that are happening in that assessment. Get them back to this level, and you will feel it on snow 100%. No knocking the rust off. No dusting off your skis, no getting your ski legs back into shape. They are in shape. You know they're in shape because you did the work to get them there. And that brings us to the last assessment that we conducted in this year's reassessment, which is the broad jump. Broad jump is a two-footed, explosive distance jump that's measuring your body's absolute max effort plyometric power. Why the hell does this matter? Because moving carving, changing direction, navigating tougher terrain, and getting the hell out of the way of people that are cutting you off, as mountains have the most people on them that we've ever seen, is an athletic requirement. You must be able to change direction quickly, align your mind with your muscles, your brain, and make a reaction. Reactions require power. You're moving an object quickly over space. It's power. So if you can improve your broad jump, by an inch, by two inches. If you can go from not being able to broad jump because your body doesn't like jumping to being able to jump at all, how much would that improve your skiing? If you can go from doing a broad jump in pain to doing a broad jump pain-free, how much would that improve your skiing? I know the answer to all these questions, but what we're trying to get is to measure at the end of the season when we're in our best ski shape what is a good metric? How far can we jump? What happens when that happens? Do we create pain? Are we landing on one foot and then the other? Are we taking off a of one foot and then the other, even though we should be taking off a of two? Do we twist in the air for some reason? Do we land and we fall because we can't decelerate upon a landing? Do we have trouble getting off the ground? All of these are questions that we should be asking ourselves as skiers that have any interest in improving our ability the next time that we get on snow. So now that we've had a long-winded discussion of the trap bar deadlift, the one-mile run assessment, the front squat, lateral loaded lunge, lateral box jump for time, and the broad jump, what do we actually do now, this month, with this stuff? Because the ski season just ended, and we're not back on snow until November. Here's what you do. Note this stuff down. Write it in a rope book. Put it on your computer. Write it in a notebook, tongue twister. Put it on a computer, record it in your phone, and use these as guides. Nothing more than guides. You know what? Maybe you only choose one of these exercises to you this summer. Totally fine. Aim to at least get yourself back to where you were before you go into the next season. Yes, age is a factor, right? As we age, our muscle tissue and volume decreases over time. Our bones get less dense, although there's plenty of evidence to support that strength training increases bone density. So there's that benefit. But these things happen, of course. 
we're not going to show up to the ski mountain when we're 69 the same way that we do when we're 29. But if we can aim as we age to be relatively close to the previous season's output and conditioning levels, that's huge. It's going to make such a big difference in your skiing. It really will. You will start ready to go. There's a reason that so many athletes put effort into the preseason. And in reality, they are putting effort into the entire offseason. Of course, the professional athletes are getting paid to do this year-round. Many of us have desk jobs. Many of us work nonstop. But if you can find that minimal frequency to keep your strength training up, to not lose the work that you've put in so hard, to get to next season, bring your strength levels right into the ballpark of where they were when you ended, you're going to rip the hardest you've ever ripped scouts honor. It's just going to be different. Your body's going to feel different. It's like if you could go do a race, what do you want to race in? A 1975 Ford F100 or do you want a Ferrari? One of them is just way better designed for the racetrack. We are very much like that. Of course, we're all going to ski. We can all have fun. Everyone did this year. That's amazing. And I want more people to get skiing than ever before. But those of us that are going to strength train in the off season, it's just going to be so much better. It's going to be different. And if you've ever been confused about how to do that, that's literally why I created the ski system. I built all the 50 plus programs on there based on my history as an athlete, based on my experience as a coach for the last 10 years, based on the 10,000 training sessions that I've done. All that's no BS. I built them with everyone who's listening in mind so that other people all over the world can have access to the kind of training that can totally level up your skiing. I also have some cool stuff coming up this next year. I'm going to be launching some guided workouts. I'm going to be launching a couple of warm-up and cool-down videos for the site. So I'm very committed to continually evolving this product. Thank you guys so much for listening today. I absolutely love this stuff. I could obviously talk all day long about this. Uh, make sure you check out the blog post too. So in the show notes, there will be references to the previous testing blog. There will be references to the book, the Max Effort Calculator, and then also a link to the blog post or just to the blog so you guys can go and, and check out today's post. So thank you so much for listening. Sorry about the last week. I was out of town in Mexico on work and the blog post got pushed back as did the podcast for one week. But we're back, baby. Consistency is king. And I'm going to be here every single week delivering these for you all. So thank you so much. If you enjoy this and you've made it this far, because trust me, you're in the final episodes of the show so, or seconds of the show. So I really, really appreciate it. Sharing this podcast means the most. There's no sponsors. I'm not taking on sponsors yet. And I'm doing this out of the love. I want this message to be shared with anyone that's interested in skiing. So please share it to someone that you feel would benefit from this type of information. And I'll keep them rolling. Hope you have an absolutely great weekend. Shoot me a message if you have any questions. Abe out.